Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Mandel. Dr. Lisa Mandel is a lead scientist and the director of science software integration at Stanford University's Natural Capital Project. She is the lead author and editor of Green Growth That Works, Natural Capital Policy and Finance Mechanisms from Around the World. Dr. Mandel works with governments and multilateral development banks and NGOs, especially in Latin America and Asia, to incorporate the environmental impact of land management and infrastructure projects on ecosystem services, social equity, and human health within development decisions. So welcome, Dr. Mandel. How's it going in California? Thanks so much, Jonas, for that introduction and for having me here. We're getting some appreciated rain here in California, so quite nice. Awesome. So while preparing for this interview, I was intrigued by your background. You studied anthropology, biology, and botany throughout your undergrad and your graduate education. And then you moved on to the Natural Capital Project at Stanford with experts like Dr. Gretchen Daly, with with also an emphasis on uh, policy and finance. So could you please tell us about your academic research and career evolution? Yes, I've always been interested in the relationship between people and the environment. And for me, it started off in particular with an interest in medicinal plants. And that led me on a path towards combining anthropology, the cultural side, and as well as the ecological side, studying ecology and biology and and botany. And through that, I came to appreciate that all the values associated with the natural world, that to really change things, we need to change the way that policy and finance decisions are made. And that's part of what drew me to the Natural Capital Project. And in particular, I remember when I first learned about the idea of of ecosystem services, finding that a really powerful way of recognizing and understanding how we all depend on nature, often in ways that have gone unrecognized. So I ended up briefly interning with the Natural Capital Project when it first got started, gosh, about almost 20 years ago at this point, and started grad school and then rejoined the Natural Capital Project as a postdoc and have stayed on since as a research scientist. Awesome. So while you were at the Natural Capital Project, you decided to co-author or co-edit a book called Green Growth That Works. So could you tell us the history behind why you wanted to write this book and what was the purpose of the book? Yes. So back in 2017, we were approached by the National Development and Reform Commission of the Chinese Department of Development Planning, and they were interested in understanding international experience in green finance and development and asked the Natural Capital Project to develop a report. And I was involved in putting together, drawing in examples from around the world of different policies and finance mechanisms for supporting nature. And in doing that, it was really eye-opening for me with my own, my background in not in those areas, in particular, my background in biology and and anthropology. And through that, I selfishly thought, oh, this is a kind of information I would have loved to have heard about and understood better earlier in my career. And we also, as a group, realized that a lot of the information we were drawing on was spread through 
people's personal experiences through different reports in the academic literature, and it hadn't been brought together in a way and made accessible to students, to policymakers, to others who we were hearing demand for this information. So that is what spurred us to turn it into the book, Green Growth That Works. So you mentioned the NDRC from China, but there are also authors from uh, Latin America, the Caribbean, and uh, many other countries. And I'd be interested to hear about the collaboration process between all these uh, authors and how the book then came to be. Yes. So how many chapters do we have? We have 17 chapters and and dozens of co-authors. And it was really a collaborative process because so many of these examples are from so many different places in the world, Costa Rica, South Africa, cities in Europe. We wanted to bring together people who had experience in all those places and so brought together many different authors to contribute their their perspectives and their experience and expertise. In, in the introductory part of the book, you, you try to uh, introduce several key concepts that our audience should know about if they want to delve into this field. Uh, but we'll touch on the two most important ones. Yes, yeah, so natural capital and ecosystem services. Natural capital, for a technical definition, it's the stocks of living and non-living parts of ecosystems that provide benefits to people. What what we really mean by natural capital is water, soils, lands, nature that is so critical for sustaining earth systems and the many ways that we rely as a society and our economies on nature. And from natural capital then flow ecosystem services. You can think of natural capital as the stocks and ecosystem services as the flows of benefits. And that includes everything from food, fuel, timber, clean water, pollination of crops to intangible benefits like cultural values, a sense of place, nature-based tourism and recreation. So a whole suite of benefits that, that we receive from nature. Awesome. And before we dive into the different policy and finance mechanisms, could you give an overview of how the book is structured, especially with all these different tools and case studies? Yes. So we start off the book with an overview of different types of mechanisms and an example from each. And that's that's the first section. And that for each mechanism type, we include examples of what the benefits are, how they're provided, who is supplying those benefits. And then for that mechanism, what are the terms of the exchange? How does it work for the beneficiaries of particular service to compensate or incentivize the provider of that service to secure or enhance those benefits. And we also provide some of the information on to the extent that it exists on how the effectiveness of these policies have been evaluated. We have a second section of the book that is really focused on places and examples from around the world. So including China and Costa Rica, United States, the United Kingdom, the Caribbean, and different cities that are have been advancing these policy and finance mechanisms. And we hope with this that we can make these examples really accessible and that they can provide a starting point for others who might be interested in trying these out in a scale or researchers who are interested in studying them further. So now let's dive into those uh, different mechanisms and case studies. So let's start off with government subsidy mechanisms. Could you give an overview of that, please? Yeah. So Government subsidies might be one of the examples that your audience is most familiar with. Subsidies are used for all sorts of benefits, not just natural capital and ecosystem services. 
And under this kind of mechanism, the government will compensate ecosystem service providers, often with funds from a general budget, and the government is the one that is determining where to invest those funds, what, how to pay for securing those benefits, and often monitoring those outcomes as well. And this mechanism includes some of the earliest examples, for example, from New York City and its investments in the the Catskills watersheds for securing New York City's water supply, which date back, dates back to the 1990s. Next up, we have regulatory-driven mitigation. Regulatory-driven mitigation is another, I think, one of the more established examples as well. And in this case, the government sets policy and law that actors who damage ecosystem services or biodiversity must pay to restore those losses Often this approach involves using mitigation credits or offset credits. And in this case, then the actor, for example, that damages natural capital biodiversity, say develops, puts a development in a wetland, will may pay a different party to do the restoration. And then the exchange happens through credits. And this example has been, been common also in the United States. The city of Washington, D.C. has a stormwater retention credit program. At the national level in the U.S., there's mitigation banking for for wetlands. And the state of California has a number of programs, partly conservation banking for species and habitats, and also a cap-and-trade program for carbon mitigation. So now we've discussed the government and the regulatory side. Let's move on to voluntary conservation. Yeah, so in the case of voluntary conservation, individuals or groups that, that care about the environment and want to contribute to securing or enhancing natural capital will often provide funding directly to ecosystem service providers. And in some cases, governments can help incentivize this by providing tax credits for folks who donate to these greater goods. One of the particularly interesting example of this comes from the Amazon, the Amazon Region Protected Areas Program called ARPA, in which a number of different groups have come together to provide long-term funding to secure benefits, global benefits and local benefits associated with conservation in the Amazon region. So now let's move on to market-based uh, transactions. First off, ecosystem certification. Yeah, so in eco-certification, this involves a particular product. It can be things like coffee or ecotourism. So with a a certificate or a certification that identifies that product or activity as meeting certain standards for protecting or enhancing nature. And there's often then third-party groups that provide those certificates so that consumers can have confidence that there are benefits associated with that product or that activity. So after eco-certification, the last market-based uh, transaction mechanism is impact investing. Yes. And this is one area that I think has gotten a lot of attention recently. And there's a lot of interest in trying to understand how private finance can support nature and really help make up the gap that we see between where we think we need to be in terms of the amount of finance for nature and, and where we are now. So currently, most of the funding for nature does come through governments, multilateral development institutions. And and the question is, how can we drive more private finance towards this? And with impact investing, then investors are making financial contributions to bonds or investment funds that then provide funding to ecosystem service providers. And then through that funding to ecosystem service providers, some of the financial flows 
go back to the investors. And there's some, uh, some really interesting examples of this in Washington, D.C. There has been a bond that received uh, private funding helped the city of Washington, D.C. So a bond, environmental impact bond with private that received private funding that helped this Washington, D.C. invest in green infrastructure for stormwater management. And this reduced the risk that the Washington, D.C. experienced and its taxpayers experienced in trying this this green infrastructure approach to managing stormwater and also provided returns to the investors. And there's a growing number of examples from other places in the U.S. and internationally. Awesome. There's so many mechanisms and I, I hope that the listeners get to read the book and uh, delve into further and hopefully implement it in the future. But now we'd like to move on to what you do your, in your day-to-day -day work at the Natural Capital Project or NATCAP, as you usually call it. And if I'm not mistaken, NATCAP have over 500 partnerships, both global and local. And there's one interesting project that you shared, which spans across 16 countries. And I'm looking forward to you delving into the, the progress of that project and what's your focus in that project. Yes, and that's right. So NATCAP, Natural Capital Project, has been around now for nearly 20 years. And over that time, we've had hundreds of different partnerships. So we've worked, we work with governments, we work with NGOs, non-governmental organizations, civil society groups, researchers, businesses, all sorts of different groups to co-develop information on the values of nature to help support decision-making by governments, by financial institutions, by companies. And so that's how we've come to have more than 500 partners and collaborators over time. One current project that is been that is our focus at the moment that we're really excited about is we're calling it the three Ps project, people, planet, prosperity. And this is a work with the Global Environment Facility and with three multilateral development banks, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the Asian Development Bank. And we're working currently with those three financial institutions and within 16 pilot countries to co-develop rapid natural capital approaches to inform policy and investment decisions in those countries. And this has been a really exciting opportunity to try to scale some of the examples that are presented in Green Growth that works and to understand what's, what information is needed and what processes are needed in different institutions and different countries to bring natural capital information into development decisions there. And this includes you know, the values of nature and really how that supports the development goals, the economies, the well-being of people in these pilot countries. There's still a long way to go with the project, but there's still some successful milestones. And one is the recent launch of the Pacific Natural Capital Fund. Could you give an overview on this, please? Yes, this is really exciting. The Asian Development Bank and the Global Environment Facility recently announced, so in November, earlier this month, if you're listening in, in November of 2023, recently announced a new fund, a natural capital fund, which is designed to support projects that protect and enhance natural capital and also enhance food security within Asian Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank's developing member countries. And the Jeff started with an initial investment of $15 million. So yeah, exciting to see that there is 
growing recognition of the links between nature and in this case, food security and putting some funding behind that to move this forward. Awesome. We're now reaching close to the end of this uh, podcast and I've really enjoyed uh, reading your book, listening to uh, you speak today. Uh, we like to end these interviews with uh, some advice to whether it's personal or professional to the listeners. First off, what's your advice to students and uh, researchers, especially from your experience transitioning from, let's say, the scientific side to the policy and the finance side, and especially any recommended resources that are available at the NATCAP that they should take into consideration? Yeah, I think for students and researchers, there are so many opportunities for folks who are interested in these topics coming from all sorts of backgrounds, whether you're coming from a science side or a policy or a business side and following what you're what you're interested in. And, th- and yeah, I think, so I guess backing up again. Yeah, there's so many opportunities. On the finance side, I think we hear about a need for the science to build in solid monitoring and reporting and verification and for building an understanding of what truly works and how to deliver benefits. So I think there's a lot of good that can come from working across across different disciplines. And so I guess my advice would feel would be interested in bridging those disciplines to realize that whatever background you come from has a lot of value and you're not restricted only to working in in that space. There's a lot of need for this collaboration. In terms of, of resources from the Natural Capital Project for anybody who's interested in learning more, I invite you to check out our website. We have produced software called Invest to help map and quantify and value ecosystem services. It's a free open source tool. You can download it on our website. We have resources for learning how to use the tool through YouTube, through a user's guide and a community forum where users can engage with the experts on the Natural Capital Project team. And I'll also say we are hosting a natural cap our natural capital symposium. This was an annual event. Our last one was in 2019, so it hasn't happened since the COVID pandemic, but we're bringing it back in 2024. So in, from June 4th to 7th, we gather leaders from government, multilateral development, finance, the private sector, research institutions, civil society. So everyone is welcome. And it's an event that happens at Stanford. You can find more information about that on our website as well. Awesome. Do you have any advice for policymakers, corporations, or financiers that want to be in, uh, in, more involved in uh, nature-based finance? Yes. And perhaps the, the your listeners already fully understand this, but to me, I think a key message here is that this is really possible. There are a growing number of examples of how nature finance has already been deployed and those numbers are growing every day. We've been talking about soon, it maybe will be time to put out a, a new edition of Green Growth That Works because we keep hearing more exciting examples that we would love to share more widely from, from governments, from the insurance sector, all sorts of different perspectives on how to finance nature conservation. And so I think there's a lot that's already happening. This is doable. And I think there's a lot of potential through collaboration and from learning from sharing experiences that we can really scale this. And now it was really a critical time. Lastly, for those who are really motivated and are really interested in that cap project, how can they reach out to you? Yes, I would say you can email us. The general email is naturalcapitalproject at stanford.edu and naturalcapitalproject.stanford.edu is our website. Yes, naturalcapitalproject.stanford.edu is the website where you can, you can learn 
more. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that the listeners will learn a lot from this. We'll check out your book and implement them in the future. Best wishes with your future project. Have a great day in California. Thank you so much, Jonas. It was really great to be here. Thanks so much for your interest in this topic. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.